0: Hey everybody and welcome to part 8 of the Metallicast and Summer for All series. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan, my name is Brandon. So I'm very excited about this episode. We only have two more left, including this one, before the Summer All series is done. I have two guest hosts lined up for both those episodes. And I'm very excited about our guest host this episode. You know him as one of the co-hosts of Metal Up Your Podcast. He is a professional musician, touring the country, recording. Mr. Clint Wells, how are you, sir?
1: Hey, dude. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I think of all of us as like a uh, like a metal volleyball team. So it's, <laughs> so it's nice when we can play a game together.
0: Yeah, you know, I gotta be honest. I I had the thought of doing a Metallica podcast uh a year or two before I actually started it, and once I actually got this thing off the ground, I sort of, it was only, it was not until then that I sort of realized the community that is out there, um, and the other shows are out there, and I had no clue how I would, you know, sort of fit in or be accepted, you know, like in middle school. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) But, you know, you never know what the response will be, and I don't want to step on feet or you know, feel, I don't want anybody to think, you know, we're trying to rip each other off or whatever, but I gotta just say thank you because you guys at Metal for your podcast and, you know, across the board have been super supportive of the show and, uh, through social media and through your own episodes. And so just thank you for that. And thank you for coming on today.
1: Oh yeah, dude. Uh, I think the more the merrier. And I think it says a lot about the band that it is interesting that it all sort of happened at the same time, maybe within eight months. It seems like we all kind of came online with the podcast, but um, I think it's a good time to be a fan. The the new record's good. The boys are are successfully selling out stadiums and arenas. And yeah. I don't know, man. It's a good good time to get a conversation going. And I think like I think all the shows. I listen to all the shows. By the way, I listen to your show. And I think they all have their own flavor, honestly. So yeah, I, I agree. Good.
0: I think we all do a pretty good job of coming at it from different perspectives. Um, and you know, I'm super excited about the upcoming World Wire Tour since you mentioned it because I personally feel like this might be the best they've ever been live currently
1: nice yeah i I, did you see them at all last year
0: yeah i saw them at metlife in new jersey um last summer and then i got my tickets for the albany show in october
1: awesome yeah i i saw them twice last year and uh i thought i thought the show was great the last time i saw them was in 2000 so i i was like 17 i didn't really have i couldn't really remember much about it to compare to it that was the
0: summer sanitarium tour
1: yeah yeah Yeah,
0: that was was my first Metallica tour too oh no Uh, shit really yeah I was was at the Gillette Stadium one in Mass it was
1: uh ill-fated um because James didn't show up because he heard his back water skiing so it was a a really odd show where basically like uh the members of Korn and Kid Rock and System of a Down kind of they still played and Jason sang lead vocal for some of it it was pretty rough, and then they came back like maybe a month later and played another show at, a, at an amphitheater, and it was good. I do have a story about Gillette Stadium. So right near Gillette Stadium, I don't know if it's still there, but there's a uh, Toby Keith's Bar and Grill. Is that still there? Do you know?
0: Uh, I've I've moved away from that area, so I'm not positive, but I was there not too long ago, and I want to say it is there, but I'm not 100%.
1: It's like there's nothing over there except for one hotel, Gillette Stadium, <laughs> yeah. and a Toby Keith's Bar and Grill. Yeah, and uh, I was doing this. Uh, I was touring with this country girl, and we were doing a tour of Toby Keith's Bar and Grills, which is as depressing as it sounds. <laughs>
0: Wait, there's more than one. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a huge chain. But but it's That's funny because it's,
1: it's funny because it's like Starbucks, where no matter where you are, it looks exactly the same. Right. Yeah. So we would fly to like the one in Denver. The next day would be the one in Jersey, and it it was it was not a super fun tour. And um, but I remember there was only one hotel there. So after our show we're hanging out outside uh the hotel and it was bruce springsteen's crew i guess bruce was doing a tour and it was such that it was kind of like metallica they had a whole uh b rig that they would send to the next city so the b rig crew was there just setting up so yeah bruce wasn't there the concert wasn't that night but his crew was so we got a kick out of meeting some of those dudes we talked until like two in the morning and then just as i was about to go to bed one of the uh one of the crew guys sort of casually mentioned that he was on the crew for Metallica during Anger years for like oh, 6 God. years and i was like well we're not going to bed <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's do it all nighter <laughs> and he was yeah he
1: was he was uh he had some uh he had some um should I should have put this. He had some recreational help to stay up that I wasn't taking part in, but I was just, <laughs> yeah. I was high. That's on a Italian. nice way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so he, you know, I, he kind of told me all about that tour. This was maybe the 2011, so this is like long before the podcast and everything. So yeah, that's my one memory of Gillette Stadium that you <laughs> well, mentioned.
0: You know what? It's funny because you know I grew up in New England, so I'm a big uh, Patriots fan, and I always laugh whenever I watch a Patriots game because they show, you know, Faneuil Hall in Boston. I'm like, Gillette Stadium could not be farther. From any of that stuff, there's nothing right. around there. It's literally like all you have on your way there is parking lots to park at <laughs> Gillette Stadium. Yeah, and I remember all the remember stuff thinking, is just there, the actual stadium itself.
1: I remember thinking it was, it did feel weird. It feels like it's in the middle of nowhere.
0: Yeah, it sort of is.
1: Yeah, we're, 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 we might be going to that Albany show. Um, we're trying to figure out if logistically if we can make it, but yeah, if we do, uh, we should, we should try to get connected up there that'd be fun
0: totally i i've talked to a uh, couple people online it sounds like they're either going or gonna try to go so i'm hoping i meet up with a few uh a few guys out there so that'd be awesome we could meet up in person yep you'll have to let me know so i just want to start off you know before we jump into the injustice for all discussion and specifically about track eight off that album to live is to die uh, just wanted. I always ask people this because I'm always fascinated by everybody's Metallica story because I, everybody's got a different entry point. So, mm-hmm. what is your entry point? How did you first get into the band?
1: Yeah, I, so I'm 34, um, which I think says a lot. I've learned that people of certain age groups, it, like they kind of have similar paths. But so for me, it was the Inner Sandman music video. Just a kid of MTV. I don't remember seeing the one video. Oddly, I mean, I watched mtv a lot, um, but I think I would have remembered seeing that because it's so scary. But for <laughs> yeah. me, my fir- my first memory is the uh, Inner Sandman video, which I I still think is great. I think I think the song Inner Sandman is great, a great Metallica song, a great song. I think it's yeah. probably one of the most recognizable metal songs ever written, like up there with Iron Man. You know, like yeah, Back in Black, Iron Man.
0: If you've never heard a metal song before, if for some strange reason you don't know the name Metallica. You probably know Interstella.
1: Yeah, which is ironic because for many, for many tr- tr- "quote unquote" truths out there, that's when they sounded the least like Metallica. You know, like, <laughs>
0: right, right. Which they well, had no until idea. years later. Yeah, they had no idea. <laughs> they had no idea Load and Reload were coming. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> or Lulu or Saint Anger. Or <laughs> right, right, totally. That's,
1: uh, we always joke about that. Like people who complain about Load and Reload, like. You know, when St. Anger and Lulu were happening, people were longing for the days of fuel and the memory <laughs> yeah, remains. Yeah,
0: right, right, right.
1: So anyway, yeah, I saw that uh, video with an immediate, immediate fan, like immediate, like didn't stop to think about it, didn't, you know, didn't pass go, didn't collect $200. Immediate fan of the band, went out and bought the Black Album. Like most people my age at that time, I loved the Black Album. And um, and then so, yeah, so that that's when I was a fan. And then, of course, five years later when Load came out, that was the first record I bought as a fan of Metallica. So that's the load and reload era really special to me because that that's when they were my band.
0: Yeah. You, you have basically the same story as I do because I'm 33. So I'm just a year younger. Right. So I, rem- I have two older brothers that always had MTV on. So I remember being in, you know, kindergarten, first grade and seeing that into Sandman music video. And at that young man age, latching onto the song and I remember getting a cassette of the Black Album, and then I kind of I was too young to really dive into any of the back catalog. But then I heard Until It Sleeps. So I was like, Oh, there's a new Metallica song on the radio. Right. So, and Load was the first CD I ever owned. It came with my first stereo that I got nice. for Christmas. So, like I I similar to you, I have a very like special bond with Load and Reload and that whole era because I was in middle school, like. Getting into Metallica, discovering really metal and hard rock for the first time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think of that really fondly. And what got me into the early stuff? I mean, I, I did my own investigating, but you know, as you remember, it's harder to acquire music back then. Like you had, we we would go to the mall like once a month, and my mom would give me a twenty dollar bill, which meant yeah. one CD. But, you know, right. right? Yeah, yeah. My sister would go spend it on like what can't? She would really make the twenty dollars spread. Yeah. For me it was, that just meant one seventeen ninety nine C D. So <laughs> right. like I remember being in the C D store holding User Illusion one and User Illusion two and being super torn over which one to buy.
0: <laughs> I went through that same thing. <laughs> that was gonna that was gonna
1: be the one I was only gonna be able to listen to for like three months until I could go again, you know.
0: Do you remember which one you bought first?
1: I went with User Illusion one. Oh I like, went with and, two. I went with and two I'll, first. One I'll, came tell you, I'll tell you why though. You'll probably think it's funny. Because it had so many songs with cuss words in the title. <laughs> it had Right Next Door to Hell, Don't Damn Me, Back Off Bitch. Back Off
0: Bitch, yeah. <laughs> and
1: I, you know, just as a kid, I was like, sticking it to, that was my way of sticking it to the man. Well, you it's know?
0: funny because, you know, similar to that, too, I went to a record store to look at the Metallica CDs. I was like, all right, there's four that I don't own. I mm. only have enough money to buy one. So right. I'm looking at, like, the album covers, because I, I didn't hear much of this music if any of it at that point so i was like just basing it off album covers and i'm like all right i feel like as badass as the electric chair is and this and that i'm like if i bring home an album called Kill 'Em all my mom's gonna be like what the hell did you buy right. <laughs> so i went with that one first which was probably the biggest shock once i put it on i was like whoa this is the same band that does until it sleeps at inter salmon <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: what maybe you feel this way too i, I i've been thinking as I've been getting older, and I have a daughter now, and do you have any kids? Not yet, no. Okay. I've been thinking about it, like, with my daughter, and, you know, it, I don't know if it's nostalgia or what, but um, the 90s feels special in a way because I remember going back, too, and being like, wow, like, uh, Seek and Destroy sounds real different than King Nothing or whatever. Yeah. And uh, But unlike maybe some of our peers or friends who were the, true, the Trues in the 80s, it didn't bother me at all that they sounded different. Like, I think there was a plurality that happened in the 90s that... We're all lucky to have sort of been brought up in it just Does none of that yeah. stuff really bothers me?
0: No, I like different. I think uh, one of the reasons why Metallica is my favorite band is because, in my opinion, every album you get has a signature sound, but yeah. you never know what to expect because they're going to take that sound in different directions.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I agree. And I, you know, like I, I don't want to knock any bands out there, but like I have nothing but respect for a band like AC/DC, and mm-hmm. I get part of the appeals that they basically have done the same album over and over again but that but to me that's just a lot less interesting
1: i, I totally agree there there if you go down that path of of like let's name all the bands that did that it's a pretty short list i think it's like one band on it and that's acdc yeah because the songs are so great like the songs are so timeless they kind of got away with that
0: even but, like a band like megadeth when they came out with risk i'm not saying i love that album or anything but i was like i thought it was really cool that they were doing some different stuff and You know, it was a little bit poppy or whatever, but I was like, hey, you know, they're, they're experimenting; They're doing the thing, you know?
1: It's almost similar to, um, do you live kind of near where you grew up in New England?
0: Yeah, within a few hours.
1: It's odd sometimes for me to, to come across or have coffee or have a drink with someone that I went to school with or knew from a long time ago. And when they're still kind of living the exact same life, you know what I mean? That was happening 15 or 20
0: years ago. Sort of like the townie mentality. (laughs) yeah it's 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 a little bit of a bummer you know yeah yeah yeah
1: and I think I think that's same with records too like people grow people change and when your artists don't I don't know it's like I kind of depend on my artists to do that even if they go into areas that I maybe that aren't my favorite you know like sure that's why I look to them you know they're they're the ones who help me see the world so I like when they do weird shit like that
0: totally and I'm into some more like avant-garde stuff too like you know, whether it's from Mike Patton or John Zorn or, you know, some of the Frank Zappa stuff or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever quirky stuff is out there. So mm-hmm. when they did I'm like Lulu, I was extremely intrigued and in it. Like that album, I'm not saying it's a go-to album for me, but it, I will go back to it and give it attention because it's just so bizarre. <laughs> right, totally, Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's the best way I guess I can sum it up, but
1: it's yeah, it's good if you're in the mood for that kind of thing, it's perfect for
0: that. Yeah, it, it's just, um, it is not for everybody and it's not intended for everybody. And I'm not going to be putting that album over Master of Puppets any day, you know, but <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, it's interesting to me that you say, um, that's one of the appeals of Metallica to you because. You know, I was listening to some of your music on clintwellsmusic.com. I'll give you a little plug there
1: oh boy <laughs> I hope the, I hope the servers won't crash if everyone's so interested in my music
0: <laughs> they though only reason they won't crash is because there's only so many people listening to this podcast but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know the music that you have posted there is you know very different than Metallica I would the few songs I listen to I would describe it more in line with uh you know i i I heard some beatles influence i heard um it sounds more in line with maybe like a ryan adams yeah Um, ryan adams
1: big influence of mine
0: so i was just curious you know how does metallica do when you are when you're composing um a song more in that style or anything outside of rock because i think you just did a was it you that just did a reggae album
1: no, that's my my co-host Ethan. He just co-host did that.
0: Ethan. All right. My I have a but... side
1: project called Lunar Satan that is like a metal. It's like yeah. a new wave of British heavy metal, like satanic space odyssey.
0: Um, <laughs> that is, Enough that, that said. is
1: <laughs> and but that's kind of a new thing, and that that's definitely like a um, a winky kind of ghostish type band. But you're right; yeah. most of my music is um, acoustic based. Or, if it's not acoustic bass, it's more like Radiohead. It's it's more ethereal right. ambient. It's a bit stranger. And Can then you... I'm a, I'm a songwriter for a living, too, as well as a guitar player. So a lot of it is commercial or country music, mm-hmm. uh, music that would be good in a film or on a TV commercial. Right. And, and the, I, I think the way, that, the way that the thread of it with Metallica, with me, isn't so much like in the chugga-chugga or downstrokes or even just metal as a genre, but more about like attitude their bravery, their, um, their commitment to being great, like, you know, the perfectionism Mm -hmm. of the band, particularly with James and Lars. Right. And, uh, and the, the, um, you know, their sort of unwavering, uh, commitment to trying something new. Yeah. I, I, it's weird how often I either consciously or subconsciously think about James or Lars when I'm wanting to write something that's a little different or inject something, uh, something left of center into a country song or, it's really more about an attitude, you know, like they carried hmm. over that sort of punk rock attitude that I think has been so important for music.
0: That's really what, interesting.
1: Whether it's Pearl Jam or U2 or Madonna, right. you know, like that's yeah. something that I've always uh, looked up to them with, you know.
0: And, you know, if you're an 80s true, as you said, cover your ears, because what I'm about to say might be blasphemy to you. But Uh-oh. Metallica writes great pop songs. Absolutely. You know, like no question. Into the the... If you take it, uh, especially like the Black Album, Load, Reload, where I feel like that was more of the focus of the songwriting. Great Mm -hmm. hooks, great melodies. I mean, there's a reason why those albums sold the way that they did and got the airplay that they did. And, you know, they did it all without any outside songwriters, you know, unlike a band like Aerosmith. I'm not knocking Aerosmith, but, um, you know, they kind of always kept the songwriting to the... uh, within the band and they were able to produce massive results
1: i absolutely agree like a band like you mentioned aerosmith for sure started taking in outside songwriters and uh um kiss which another band that i love a lot started they they kind of were writing from the outside and even Megadeth
0: uh, during that little 90s era with the wrist they were getting some uh songwriting from the outside i believe too
1: well in my in my opinion that dude needs all the help he can get (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm not a big
1: Megadeth fan. So, uh-huh. I,
0: well, I, you know, I'll, I'll say this because I've mentioned them twice already. Um, I grew up a big Megadeth fan. And then probably the last decade or so of new music completely lost me because I find it very generic. And Dave Mustaine as a personality also lost me along the way over the last decade or so. <laughs> yeah,
1: he's, I think he's disappointing for a lot of his fans, especially yeah. as an outsider, where I'm like, I don't care either way. I, right. think, I think it's great that people make music and i consider anyone who makes music on the same team as me and uh i don't like um deriding other art but he's yeah. such a freaking butthole that it's like...
0: <laughs> well my one of my good buddies and i we always laugh because like we will text almost every day he's one of my best friends and 75 mm-hmm. percent of our texts are jokes about dave mustaine or glenn
1: danzig oh yeah yeah danzig's
0: fun too like they both just they both they're both just asking for let's be honest here you know
1: i i I totally agree and and if he didn't kind of constant i i resent him almost for being part of the metallica conversation so often because if he was just doing his own thing and he had he carved out his own little mega dave world and he was a jerk. I mean, he's a jerk to his fans. It's so like he'll go off on his fans on Twitter. Yeah. But if he, so, if he was over in that corner of the world doing that, I wouldn't think twice about it. I would. I just don't care. But it's yep. just it's always some Metallica bullshit. Like there's always some drama with him and Metallica. Like I can't escape him. You know. And it's so.
0: never started by Metallica. It's never escalated by Metallica. I feel like they are repeatedly taking the high road when asked I about agree. it in interviews. And Mustaine just cannot let it go. Even after, you know, like the big four shows and the 30th anniversary shows where they shared a stage and it seems like, all right, now it's time to move on finally. You know, right. he still makes his little smart-ass comments and stuff. It's like, it, it to me, it just sounds uh, desperate and sad. Like, I sort of feel bad for the guy, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and now it's this whole, the no to leather box that's being held up and he's talking about yeah. how James is... Lars, james is scared of lars and lars, <laughs> yeah, lars wants credit for something. you can
0: tell didn't. james is petrified of lars you know just after 30, 30 odd yeah, years Totally. Of <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh, dave
1: um but but you mentioned <laughs> that, that metallica actually does make pop music and i i 100 agree with that like if if you look back at what was happening in the 80s if if you look at slayer and anthrax and testament and exodus and all, all this great music right that's seminal thrash music what why do i mean we and ethan talk about this all the time why does metallica stand out why do they a song like for whom the bell tolls is a pop song uh mm. i think seek and destroy is a pop song it's got loud thrashy guitars but that's pop is bigger than um a dance beat uh, you know what i mean like yeah yeah,
0: yeah so people think pop and they think, you know, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry for modern artists or a Madonna for somebody older. But I agree with you. It's not it doesn't mean like there's a drum machine and like bubblegum lyrics over it.
1: Yeah, there's sort of like a, a hive mentality about it or or like a there's almost like a visceral gut reaction to that word, which I just think we all have to grow beyond. That's you that's not part of the conversation. Of course, they're heavy. They're the heaviest fucking band ever. They're the, they're cool. They did everything on their own terms with a punk rock attitude. Yeah. But their songs appeal to a lot of people because they're so good. I yeah. think that's that's okay for a Metallica fan to admit.
0: That's the in Emmy Pop, just is short for popular. Yeah. <laughs> so and I they mean, are so the massively popular to this day. I mean, they it amazes me that this far into their career. And if you look at uh, Billboard, just released like the fifty highest grossing artists, and they were number three i believe maybe number oh. two and they were they more than any artist in any genre they had sold they had made more royalties off recorded music in 2017 than anybody else
1: i love that i, I, I my, my my reaction to that is like that's my boys like yeah the people who want their favorite bands to remain small i have no interest in that and i don't understand that mentality I want my bands, I want everyone in the world to hear and love my band the way that I love them, you know.
0: Right. And I get it if you have a band that, you know, let's say you have a band that produces "Kill 'Em All. And then the next album, all of a sudden, it sounds like, you know, Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. I would get that if you were like, whoa, that's not, you know, now they have the gelled up hair and the makeup and, you know, the songs are much more polished and clean but i think for metallica they've like you said they've always done it their way they've always stayed rooted in you know what they do and in terms of like breaking through it was such a gradual natural organic thing
1: yeah and i, I think if you have to get off the ride because you don't like the way the Black Album sounds that's totally fine what i don't really yeah. dig is the like that's not metallica it's like well yeah. I thought Metallica was James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich and Kirk Hammond. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so if they're doing something, that's Metallica. Sorry.
0: Absolutely. And you can say you
1: don't dig it, that's fine.
0: And you know, and, and at this point though, too, we just have, we as fans just have to recognize that there will always they, a band that popular is always going to have naysayers. And Metallica gets it tenfold I think because because of their metal roots. Because, you know, I think a lot of metal fans are not as open-minded as they might think that they are.
1: I and agree, and I I think for the future of heavy music, that shit's got to evolve. It's got to change, and I think I think that's happening. I think the conversation yeah. with younger metal fans I don't think it's not as tribal. I, I don't I really don't think it's as tribal. Yeah. So.
0: Well, I think you see a lot more bands now in general just bringing in outside music. You know, uh, one of my favorite bands is Dillinger Escape Plan. And they'll mm-hmm. do everything from, you know, hardcore to thrash to jazz to industrial to, you know, whatever. There's, you know, even a slight hip-hop influence here or there. Or a band like Faith More is one of my all-time favorites, and they sort of oh, started yeah. that whole thing. You know, v- v- blending hip-hop and funk and funk, you know yeah. Lionel Richie covers, and, you know, they're all over the boat. And that's, and, and that's what attracts me to those bands.
1: Yeah, I agree. I totally agree.
0: So I gotta ask in Justice for All, thirtieth anniversary this month, hints the reason for this little In Summer for All series that I am doing. General thoughts on the Justice album. Do you remember oh, love, the first time you heard it or
1: I do. Um It probably would have been 93 94 as I started to work my way back and um, I was a big fan of Binge and Purge, so there's a lot of that material. Obviously, the 89, Seattle 89 is the Damage Justice Tour. So, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan. It's my sec- so my first favorite, despite being the 90s cat that I, that I am proud to be all the time, <laughs> my favorite Metallica record is Ride the Lightning. My second favorite is, is Injustice for All. And, uh And Blackened is my second favorite Metallica song. To Live is to Die, which we're talking about today, is my favorite instrumental uh, I think the song One is a masterpiece. I think Dyer's Eve is in the album closer category. I don't think it would make my number one in, in terms of my personal favorite, but it probably is the most brutal, relentless one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love Injustice for All. And I, as I've done the podcast, you know, I, when we started, I kind of felt like most Metallica fans, or most Metallica fans of a certain caliber, the Injustice for Jason, I want to hear it with bass and all this. I've kind of started to feel like, I don't know if I want to hear it any different. Like if they do, if they put out a remix of it, I think that's interesting, but I don't, I hope it's not just a remix with bass. You know what I mean?
0: Right. I, I said this on a episode recently. Um, it might've been when I was talking to Kevin Van Dam when I had him on, but anyways, um, the justice production to me makes, gives that album such a unique sound. I'm a yeah. bassist. I'm never going to complain about too much bass, but I having the lack of the low end at times just makes it sound bleak and grim. And it just gives that album, whether this was by accident or not, it gives that album, my opinion, such a unique flavor.
1: Yeah, I agree. It has its own character. There was an interesting interview with Kirk on the Gilbert Godfrey show. I don't know if you've heard that. And they, it's weird. They they mostly just talk about movies, old horror movies. But the one thing they do talk about with Metallica is the, the lack of bass, and Injustice for All. <laughs> he talks about how um and he you know he's not the best spokesperson for that. It's yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah, a weird yeah. question for him, but he talks about how it was a sound, it was a deliberate sound that they went for, and how there were things they liked about it and things they didn't. And w- once they did it, they were proud of it. But then they moved, obviously they moved on to the Black Album, which sonically is a high point for them. Right. But but you're right, like the sort of coldness of it, the sort of sterileness of it is really part of the sound of that record, obviously. That sounds so obvious to say now, but I'm just thinking in hindsight. Yeah. And like with the subject matter, it's their most political record, it's
0: like I think extremely it's extremely
1: angry, you know.
0: I think it's by far their darkest period. I yeah. mean when you when your lead single literally says the word infanticide, as we discussed in the Harvest of Sorrow episode, uh you're, you're in dark territory here, and, yeah. You know you mentioned the live ship box set, and uh, if I could go back in time to one Metallica tour, I think it would be that eighty nine Damage Justice tour because I feel like that was they were they played through those songs fast, furious, tight,
1: mm-hmm. and it's
0: just a unique time because to me, like that they are at their angriest. Yeah, there's not as much bombast as you get even on the Black Album tour or, or like the Load tour, or um, it it's not as lighthearted as it is these days, you know. With uh, Jane and I'm not saying this as uh, a criticism, even, but you know, with James's dad jokes and stuff, uh, I love right. it. But right. this was just a unique time where it was like, we want to rip your fucking face off, playing these ten-minute songs. Here we go.
1: Yeah, and it's the last of the underground. Like, it's the last of... We, we just covered um, uh, the videos on our last episode, and obviously their first video was for one from this record. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, with them releasing one to MTV, they finally either changed their minds or evolved their philosophy on videos. And that video uh, was number one on MTV. And it, it's a changing of the guard in the sense where once that happens they no longer have the bragging rights of being underground, which is what their right. whole deal was. Like tape the tri- from the tape trading community uh, in the Bay Area, getting all the way out to Johnny Z, all the way through, oh, their second record ride, The Lightning, is so much better. Holy shit, they made Master Puppets. This is the greatest metal record of all time. The Aussie tour. Then they can start selling out arenas by themselves. That all kind of culminated with Damage Justice. So the, yeah. anything pre-Black Album, Black Album, as we all know, changed everything. So you're right. Like that '89, right before they went in to make that re- black album record, is kind of like the peak of the underground angry Metallica. Yeah. And then you put into that stew, Cliff Dying. You know, like Cliff Dying, them growing as men, becoming more politically aware, as Lars called it, the C what the CNN years or whatever. Right. And even with Dire's Eve is him first really starting to write about his parents. The weird yeah. kind of religious upbringing he had, his parent, his mom being taken away from him, and all that stuff. It's a pretty special record. It's yeah. it's a miracle. It's a miracle to me that
0: they made it. You know. Well, it's funny because I've heard these songs hundreds, if not thousands, of times. But you know, doing this series this summer, I've sort of tried to go in and listen to each track with fresh ears. And some of the songs, you know, it's been a little bit since I've heard them, even mm-hmm. um, and. I I feel like one of the biggest things I've taken away from doing this is the amount of firsts that this album brought to them. Wow. Uh, the first video, um, start musically. Um, I feel like you hear a lot more. Not that they didn't do this on past songs, but a lot more of like the groove-oriented riffs um, that you know. I feel like really hit their stride in the '90s and that play a big part in the Hardwired album. Um, just by slowing things down a bit, I think, uh, I know that there are thrash elements of the Justice, but they were into writing slower riffs, James was saying in an interview I was reading, and you can hear it, and I feel like that sort of was a segue into the Black album, just on opposite ends of the spectrum where you have this sonically great-sounding record with more simplistic song structures, but Uh I you can still see where they were going in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I've always said that I think Harvester of Sorrow could have been mm-hmm. on the Black Album. Totally. And even to live is to die, I mean, that that's straight, it's almost, nah, it's not sludgy, but it is slow. Gang, gang, dum A lot of, I was listening to it today, obviously, to prepare for this episode. Yeah. And a lot of restraint, and I mean, you know, as a musician, like, I would be tempted to just really want to be on top of that. You know, gang, gang, like
0: right they almost slow down the groove they almost don't give in fully
1: yeah yeah it's 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 a treat to listen to in that way to like kind of hear that restraint you know that's one of the things i do like about load and reload so much when they did sort of slow down get a little more groove oriented more blues oriented and more lyric oriented you i can hear the restraint in every fill that lars does all that space they mm. almost sound dumber, like cave, more caveman-ish, but I can hear the tension in it. And I think that's what ma- one of the things that makes those records so interesting.
0: Hmm. So let's, since you mentioned it, let's dive into this song here. So we okay. have, uh, obviously we're doing To Live Is To Die. Longest recorded original song until they recorded Suicide Redemption, fun little fact I discovered today that I never really thought about before in my life <laughs>
1: yeah it's I think the, the third longest is Master of Puppets and uh the the the, the, the thing that really strikes me about Suicide and Redemption in particular is Suicide and Redemption is one of maybe five Metallica songs that I get a little bored during and uh and look if you look at the t- I mean a 10 minute song that's hard for anyone to pull off but yeah. what's interesting is I don't feel that way about To Live Is To Die. Like, it, it's melodically so strong and so interesting and so dynamic. You know, it's, it's bookended with those two acoustic kind of nylon string beautiful parts and then that middle clean electric part. Like, it's, just, it's a whole ride, you know? Yeah. Suicide and Redemption kind of carries you. It's kind of the same dynamic for the whole I,
0: thing. I feel like with Suicide and Redemption, it gets interesting to me about Midway. And, like, yeah. the second half of that song is a lot more interesting to me than the first half of that song. Um, but I feel like those two instrumentals if we're comparing, To Live, To Die, and Suicide Redemption, in some ways are... I feel like with Suicide Redemption, they were almost going for part two of this To Live, Die. I don't think they mm. got there. But I, I feel like it's they're the most similar out of all the instrumentals. Call of yeah. is its own thing. Yeah, uh, Orion goes in a lot of different directions with the bass interlude and the various bass souls that Cliff sprinkles throughout and I, I feel like those two are a lot more unique and Tilvis die is a better version of Suicide and Redemption in some ways where you have s- sort of like the more chugging riffs and whatnot.
1: yeah 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 it's it's less ethereal like Orion and Call of Duty are very ethereal pieces Right. to die is very chunky and um and maybe the difference, you know, like, from what I read, uh, To Live us To Die is kind of mostly composed of unused Cliff music, like unused Cliff riffs. Yes. And that might be the difference, you know? I mean, his writing may have just been that powerful.
0: And it's interesting, yeah. too, that you mentioned that, because they did borrow some riffs from Cliff, and I feel like as a result... Now, bear with me, because it's going to sound like a criticism at first. I feel like... As a result, it sounds like a bunch of different songs put together, mm-hmm. but they do it in a way that's flawless. Yeah, it's All weird. the transitions just flow together. If, you, if we listen to the intro, like you said, we have that kind of classical style, clean guitar. The heavy part, when it enters, is completely unrelated. That clean part just fades out as the heavy part fades in, and it's like a new song begins, but it works.
1: Yeah, it's it's in a completely different key. Yeah. And so so is the middle part. The the intro is in E minor, then it goes to this F sharp thing, then the middle part's A minor and and just weaving all of that together, which you're right, the intro they don't really weave together. They just sort of fade out, which if I was going to put on my Kevin Van Dam uh, uh <laughs> hat. Um which she's way smarter than me, so I I don't I don't I try to do that too often. He, but.
0: he gets uh. It's funny because when Nick, not to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but when Nick was on the show, he also mentioned Kevin Van Dam just as like, this you know, because when he came on and talked to of the Beholder, I was I, there were times where I was like, Kevin, take lead. <laughs> yeah, totally. He uh
1: he's a, he's a good friend of our show, and he came. We had a party um for our one year anniversary, and he came and. Um, i I was in several com- deep conversations with him. I was completely hammered, so I don't really remember a lot of it. But, uh, uh, um, but the what I thought of today, like listening to it and thinking about Cliff and just trying to get in the spirit of what the why they wrote it and all this, mm-hmm. it does seem like you're sort of it's a lullabyish thing, and you're sort of swept up in it. And then the sort mm-hmm. of creepy got got like it creeps in almost to sort of say like. You're not going to get, you know, this isn't going to be a sweet ride. Shit's going to get dark. It's not, we're not into yeah. happy times here, you know? Like, there's maybe some, some of that was intentional. Some of the jarringness of it, you saying it feeling like different pieces of music, might yeah. have been intentional. Um, I think that opening thing is, like, among the prettiest pieces of music in their whole catalog. You know, it yeah. sounds like a hundred acoustic guitars and it sounds like some are steel string, some are nylon, but just the way they're blended, it doesn't feel like, you know, some bands would do that in the eighties
0: and yeah. it would
1: feel kind of gimmicky. They'd bring out acoustics and layer them and yes. it'd feel kind of, we- it just, I don't know, it, it wouldn't be quite landed. Like it
0: like Wanted, Dead or Alive, yes.
1: <laughs> but this kind of feels real to me. This feels like, yeah. uh, it doesn't feel like they're trying to parrot some sort of trend in the eighties. This feels like... That does no, feel like I, something Cliff probably played in a hotel room a lot or something you
0: know, and I think the production helps with that too because they're the uh it does it doesn't have like that clean eighties production that people associate with eighties metal, you know
1: mhm it still it's has
0: a, that kind of gritty grimy right sound to it
1: and I do dig that when it does come in, they really kind of let it marinate like. They do like two or three rounds of that without really changing anything.
0: Yeah, well, I was reading a, a quote from Lars this morning, and I'll just read it real quick, um, because he makes mention, I'll read part of it real quick. Um, he's comparing it to the other instrumentals that they had done up to this point, so obviously call of Cthulhu and Orion. And he says, it's also a lot looser in some ways and that it's a bit more of a jam type of thing. Not quite as square as some of the instrumental stuff we've done in the past. Which, you know, that goes right into what your point is, where they sort of just lie on that riff for a bit. It's almost like they're just sort of jamming it out and see where it goes.
1: Yeah, I've never really thought about it that way. It, it does sound kind of jammy. It's weird to hear him talk about it being loose because that that record is just so tight.
0: <laughs> well, I know what he means, com- he means compared spirit, to Blackhead. Compared to Black Blackened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally.
1: Compared to, to the double kick on Dyer's Eve, for yeah,
0: sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, um, I, you mentioned the beginning being a really beautiful part, and the thing that made me love this instrumental was... Orion is my personal favorite. To Live is To Die is easily my second favorite instrumental by the band. Yeah. And the part that made me fall in love with it was... I think the the middle part is just gorgeous, where... It's about a little over four minutes in after the guitar harmony. It just sort of has that sudden stop, and then mm-hmm. it comes in with that clean finger picking from James, and mm-hmm. Kirk is playing those little swells. It's just so orchestral and it's gorgeous.
1: I, I love it. It's a it's a yeah. It's a highlight of their whole recorded catalog, and they it's it's compositionally it's interesting because they um they they go ahead and get you into that. They change the key and they do that um, that progression, but it's all heavy. So when they finally stop and it's just James with that sort of lo-fi, real twangy uh,
0: yeah.
1: guitar, you've already sort of been introduced to it, but you don't really notice it until it breaks down like that. You know what I mean? Yep. Just that... All the heart, guitar harmony and stuff. That's the same chord progression. I, I never really notice it, though, until it all sucks down to just James.
0: And having that lo-fi element to it, as you put it, is... To me, that just makes that sound so alone. So it it gives it this feeling of isolation.
1: It is lonely sounding. And it's cool that they didn't use that same intro-outro acoustic thing. Like It's cool that they changed up the tone for that moment instead of just sort of like, oh, well, we have this really pretty clean thing. We'll just revisit that.
0: By doing so, I think when they do gradually build back up, it has much more power behind it once you mm-hmm. do kick things into
1: gear. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And unlike maybe Suicide and Redemption, the melodies are so strong throughout the whole song that it, it doesn't need a lyric to me. You know, I, I know we're about to come up on this poem, but, I, you know, Suicide and Redemption, I, I feel like could have benefited from some. Like the way My Friend of Misery was maybe intended to be an original or, or in a, an instrumental and then they were like, well, oh, let's just put words on this. I'm glad they did, you know? Yeah. Like, so, well, My Friend of Misery is one of my favorite deep cuts.
0: Which is but, funny uh, because I actually have in my notes to mention that song because the middle of My Friend of Misery, where they go back to the solo bass line, and then mm-hmm. they're doing the uh, adding the guitar over it, is a little bit similar to what they do in the midsection here of To Live As A Die. Similar effect, not... Quite the same because, like I said, you have the bass line, and it's. My friend of misery is more structured into that pop song format than. Uh, this one is.
1: Have you have you as a bass player? Have you weighed in yet on the the whole issue of the bass and the lack of bass? And I know we talked about that a little earlier, but.
0: It does not bother me um, as a bassist. Uh, my only beef is, you know, when I was trying to learn how to play these songs. I had to rely on music and tab a lot more because it's is hard to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially for um the little nuances here or there in certain songs. Um
1: Well how the hell did whoever tabbed them out, how did they do it?
0: I don't know. They must have I mean... had some kind of <laughs> isolated track, right? Like Or maybe watched them might... <laughs> live or something. But even live it varies, I feel like, you know, it's not yeah, gonna be true. played exactly the same as uh, you're gonna put different nuances and change a note or change a rhythm slightly here or there. Well
1: well they, they did they kinda played this as part of Medley's um it's on the Seattle eighty nine and they did it a little bit on the Nowhere Else to Rome tour where it's kind of a Jason solo and he'll he'll on the Seattle eighty nine it's just him playing to Live Is to Die, but you can tell it's not what he would have played on the record. He's playing very chordal. He's yeah. kinda just holding it down while they do the guitar many stuff.
0: Yeah. You
1: know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that?
0: Yes, yeah, I have. It's, it's been a number of years so I got to go back and revisit it.
1: It's pretty cool and they did it on the uh and during Black Album World too, but they just kind of in the Black Album it was it's really cool because I, from what I remember it's he they do a medley of all the uh instrumentals. So it's Orion into they don't do it in order. It's Orion into to Lives to Die into Call of it Cthulhu. It's pretty cool. But yeah, if you were just looking at that for what he might have played on the record, there's no way he played that on the record. It's yeah. more of just like him approximating it and changing it live for it to project in a big room you know
0: yeah but like i said i i feel like as an overall piece of art the lack of low end like i said helps in my opinion with the feel and the attitude of that album and it makes it unique and the reason you know it's powerful is because people are still talking about it 30 years later
1: yeah i totally agree i saw an interesting interview with james where he was being asked about it. It's, it's almost reason enough for them not to have done it this way just to avoid the goddamn questions for the rest of their career. But <laughs> he was being asked about it yet again. And uh, he was talking about... He, it was it was framed specifically about, have you, are you interested in remixing it or re-recording it? And he was like, absolutely not. Like, That's the sound of that record. It was a yes. chapter in Metallica's history. That chapter's over. It's now a document. Jason said the same thing. Someone yeah. gave him an Injustice for Jason record, and he was like they're like this is how it should have been and jason's like i think the way it came out is how it should have been like it left yeah. its mark on the world and all that stuff
0: that's what part of what i love this band too is that they really do look at each album as it's honest to the moment you know they they might look back and say oh i cringe at that song or i wish we did this differently or that differently but they're not going to go back and change it or re-record it or completely remix it they're gonna just say this was our statement at the time and we're gonna let that just be it
1: and i wouldn't want them wasting valuable time going back and living in 1988 again like no i'd rather them use that time to make a new record as good as hardwired or better you know so right
0: and and i think that's part of the reason why it, again, going back to how popular they are and how relevant they still are, is because that is their attitude. You know, they are not They've never stopped to live in the past for too long.
1: Absolutely. One of the things I do like about uh, right after that pretty section is we get we do get one of the rare recorded James Hetfield solos. Yes. Uh, which I think is always a treat. I love hearing him play lead guitar. Definitely has its own its own thing.
0: It, it definitely stands out. Like you can tell, nothing else matters as him. You can tell. That that little part of the outlaw torn is him. He definitely has his own signature sounds, even when soloing.
1: Yeah, and it's cool, you know. It's like they did it on *Suicide and Redemption* as well. It's cool to carve in a little moment for him to, uh, you know. He's like any guitar player. He loves to play. He, you know, he wants a moment to to noodle and shine. Although I was watching the, um, you know, the one time they played it full on was at the night two of the 30th anniversary shows yeah. in 2011. And when it comes to that part, Kirk plays the sol- plays his solo. Yeah, I, I was watched like, oh, that. that's
0: kind of a bummer. I actually watched that this morning in preparation for this episode because so I wanted to see sort of how they uh, presented it live. Uh, What'd you think? Sure. Um, I thought it was cool. I think it, you know, the attitude is there. It was definitely, you know, not as tight as uh, you expect Metallica to be live because it's the first time playing it live. That that was during a week where they were just. Play different play basically their whole catalog you know so it was yeah. definitely a lot looser um, it, it it was funny though like they i feel like there were definitely times where like they're looking at each other and i remember that look from you know being in bands and stuff where you're just like all right what comes next <laughs> yeah hey, uh, we're like
1: really close to not landing it you know <laughs> yeah.
0: like that i think that's uh I, I read an interview with lars or heard an interview with lars not too long ago where he's like the fun thing about being in this band is that we feel like it can still all fall apart at any at any point when we're on stage and like that's sort of what i was thinking of when i was watching I'm like this is really cool there i mean i've never there's i've never seen a bad performance from them but like this is like the kind of thing where you can tell they're just trying not to let it fall apart (laughs)
1: and that's and that's the punk rock aesthetic too that i that i think makes them special like it's more interesting to me to see that and be on that wave with them not knowing where it may or may not land than like then a band like Dream Theater, which, don't get me wrong, extremely impressive. Those dudes are monsters. And I know Mike Portnoy is a deep cat, big Beatles fan and all this. Yeah. But, you you know, those dudes are just so precise and they're so excellent. It's to the point where it's almost boring. You know, it's like yeah. it's going to be perfect.
0: It, so it, why
1: not? So why not just listen to the record
0: almost? You know what I mean? It, yeah. And I think I absolutely agree. And I think a big part of music, too, and you mentioned this word before with Metallica and, it, you know, I sort of thinking about it now like the artists that I love it's all about their attitude. Right. And uh, the I like things being raw. I like things being a little loose. Like one of my all-time favorite vocalists is Johnny Cash. Mm, He's yeah. not going to sing like Dream Theater sings. And right. I I love Dio. Dio's got an amazing voice. But like Johnny Cash is just as powerful if not more powerful in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. And he, and he, he was scary. Like, you know, like even if you were a huge <laughs> yeah. fan, you were kind of scared of him. Right. I remember, I remember seeing like videos of Lane Staley, you know, like he'd come out there on the dirt tour and take a shirt, you know, take a shirt off. And you didn't know if he was going to make it through the show or if he was going to, a demon was going to come out of him or, <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: you know what I mean? It was just like, there's something, there was an element of, of fear about it that made yeah. it, made it special. You Same know?
0: thing with uh, Scott Weiland, you know, he absolutely. Like, which, which Scott are we getting tonight? <laughs>
1: yeah, I saw him I saw him on one of the last velvet revolver shows. He was a huge mess. They were super late and didn't come out and uh, it, actually Allison Chains opened for them. This was a crazy show. And uh, Scott Weiland came out, you know, looking like Scott, consummate rock star, looking thin and pretty and singing good. but obviously a little tweaked out. He looked a little fucked up. And I was in a vantage point of the of the um, amphitheater. I could see the side of the stage. And at one point, I watched him sort of shimmy over there and uh, vomit all on the stage. Oh, God. And then he kind of shimmied his little glittery jacket off and threw it over the vomit and then came back out like nothing happened. I remember (laughs) that. I was like, this is going to get weird. And then as the show went on, it just got weirder and weirder. And eventually, they turned his whole microphone off. He's singing into the mic, but it was not coming through the PA. Oh, God. And Matt, Matt Sorum was singing the whole show. And I remember... I was looking at my friend like, this is like, this is like a David Lynch. This is like Twin Peaks or something. Yeah. And then they did, they did a, uh, they did like an acoustic set where they're all on stools and they were doing Patience by Guns N' Roses because Duff and uh, Slash were in Velvet Revolver. Right. And on the Jumbotron during the intro, you know, the intro to Patience is like a guitar solo kind of. During that, you can see Scott Wyland on the Jumbotron falling asleep.
0: Damn.
1: And then... As he's like in mid nod off, he comes to and he just starts singing the chorus. Wow. And, I mean, it was. And then so the whole band's looking at each other, just the way you were talking about how when we were in bands and shit's not happening right, and <laughs> everyone looked at each other all scared, yeah. and they just went right to the sing along part yeah. at the end. Little patience, yeah. The song was like 45 seconds long.
0: Well, sort of like, too, when you're in that position, you know, like I've played my share of bars and clubs. If you fuck up, who cares? But. We're on a big stage like that with thousands of people watching. You're like, how do we make this thing not self-destruct?
1: <laughs> yeah, there were like twenty five thousand people there.
0: What was weird is that no one
1: really seemed to care. No one really seemed to notice. If I yeah. felt like I was going insane, actually, because yeah, no one booed or anything. It was just it was odd.
0: That maybe maybe yeah, I, I, it's tragic. You know, like it's 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 easy to romanticize, but it's really just it's it's tragic. You know that one that one hit me a lot. Um, yeah but
1: but he had that thing he had that he was kind of scary in a way because yeah it just felt so real like and obviously it was real enough to where it took his own life but people can feel that i think you know and i yeah. and i'm so glad that james got well because he was going down a, a similar path you know and so yeah what's so cool that we have now as fans is we still have that realness but he's he's healthy you know and if that comes totally. with if he's traded uh singing so what for some dad jokes if that's like the collateral damage (laughs) i'm okay with that well
0: i just remember i remember seeing him on tv for the first time after he got out of rehab i think it might have actually been at this is really random but it might have been at mtv icon aerosmith Mm, okay and i remember him coming on stage and you know this is the same anger year so he has sort of like that Uh, hair was sort of slicked back, he had like those black glasses on if I recall correctly and I was like, this is a different look and then he started to speak and it was so what he said about Aerosmith I'm not going to quote him because I couldn't but what he said was so raw and he's getting like choked up on stage and I was like, whoa, this is a completely different James Hetfield and the reason I mention this is because I feel like he is finally himself. You know, he's not putting on, like, a an angry show or... Macho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a better way to put it. And it, he's just being a little bit more real. And as a result, I feel like we've gotten a lot more information off him. Like, he's a lot more open to talking about his lyrics and what songs are about to him. And, um, you know, it's, it's cool. We've got, I think, I mean, besides the health reasons and wanting to have him live a long happy life you know as fans we're just benefiting in so many ways
1: yeah i, to- I totally agree i think we're really lucky i'm grateful he got help and, and i the think amazing. that he that, you know they had to make saint, Anger, and saint angers kind of his, his aa record and um we've been i've been criticized for saying that but the, the lyrics are very like on the surface and you know my lifestyle determines my death style and
0: yeah
1: i'm angry and well, kill, a... kill 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 kill
0: there's a reason, too, why there's repetition to a lot of the lyrics and stuff, you know? Sure. Right, sort like the rote,
1: yeah, the kind of, the, yeah, the AA, the rote, the ritual, the yeah. all that stuff. But I think they had to get it out, and I think his lyrics on Death Magnetic are great. I think yep. the lyrics on Hardwired are great.
0: Yeah, it, I, I mean, it's... I think, I loved both those records. I like St. Anger, you know, there's, there's, uh, I understand the criticisms, and I definitely think it has flaws, but you know, there's some hidden gems in there and some great riffs or whatever. But anyways, like uh, I love Death Magnetic and Hardwired. And to me, Hardwired is just a near perfect record.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, even the song I don't like as much, which is Murder One, I still like it. <laughs> I still you know, yeah, I still listen I, to.
0: It. I agree. That's the probably the weakest song on the album, but I'm not necessarily gonna skip it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm looking forward to the tour coming up because I'm, you know, they played Spit Out the Bone at almost every show in Europe. So I'm hoping that they bring that over here too.
0: I know that. I, I, it's funny too because when I saw them, uh, last summer, I'm sure you can relate since you went to a couple of the shows. The audience reaction to the new songs just as high and as loud and as great as like when they play a lot of the classic stuff.
1: Yeah. I, the first time I saw them, I was in the Snake Pit, so obviously I was in there with a bunch of diehards, so that was no problem. The second time, I was kind of by where Big Mix uh, tent is, yeah. and it was weird. Some of them, some of them were like hardwired. The song got a great reaction. Now that we're dead, got a great reaction. Halo didn't so much. Halo on fire. I, people...
0: I was gonna say that's the one that didn't really. I was like, I love that song, so I was like screaming every word, and like, yeah. <laughs> and everybody around me is just like, yeah. All right, what's on to the next? <laughs> oh, and
1: I love that new intro, too, but I think that new intro for maybe the casuals, they just didn't know what it was. I, I get it, yeah. you know. The the culture of being at a concert is so different now. A lot of people are on their phones, and people, people don't move oh, as much. It's not as crazy. much energy.
0: I, I get taking, like, a phone out, and, like, taking, like, a quick picture if you're, like, up close, or, you know, if you want to take, like, a... Ten second video to send your friend who's into the band or whatever, but like the people who are glued to their phones at a concert, like live life. Not to sound like an old oh, man, no. but like I want to like take their phones and like break it. I'm like James Hatfield is five feet from you. Put your freaking phone away. No, <laughs> oh, I know it's
1: a total shame. It's a total waste. <laughs> but, but you know,
0: uh, I guess getting back into Thomas <laughs> to die. That's what I love about having uh, the guest host on is that you never know exactly where things are
1: going to go here yeah uh, well if we only talked about to live to die this would have been like a 10 minute episode <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: someone uh someone
1: criticized us on reddit the other day like i posted whatever our new episode was about the music videos and you know it's like two hours and 10 minutes long because yeah. we we talked about metallica and we talked about other shit we talked about like the way you and i are talking yeah and someone wrote wow two hours to talk about six music videos. That makes sense. Or something. It's just, you know, some <laughs> asshole on Reddit. I'm like, yeah. okay, dude. Yeah. We didn't only talk about the video. They're like, I think you could talk about everyone, well, all
0: their videos, for hours. Like, okay. My favorite thing is when people criticize a podcast because a podcast is literally the easiest form of entertainment to avoid if you don't like it. <laughs> you yeah. have to search it, download it, <laughs> like... There's a process here. It's not like you're just turning on the radio and be like, Oh, this was on the air, or turning on TV and being like, Oh, this was on whatever channel. Like you're not just stumbling upon podcasts a lot of the times, like it's usually a purposeful thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think anytime you make something, whether you're playing bass or writing songs or making a podcast, I mean, as you know, these podcasts aren't easy to do. They're not easy to yeah. commit to and have it be good and they require a lot of time and
0: that's why my I think hat- any, goes off to you guys, by the way, with, like, you and Tom, you guys do one a week, right? Yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I mean, I'm around during the summer since I'm a teacher, so I've been doing one a week. And But once the school year starts, I'm usually doing one a month. Maybe I'll do an extra one here or there if I have an extra moment. But it's tough, man. It takes a lot of time.
1: It is hard. And I think that when you... When you and I think people maybe even intuitively know that. And I think whenever you're making something, people who don't make things... They want to lash out at it. It's it's as old as time, and I understand it. And so, you know, sometimes it's become a little bit of a sport for our show, a little bit for people to start pointing out, like if we get facts wrong or just stuff we skip over. God forbid. And I'm not saying everyone at all. And in fact, it's very few people. But um, but it does happen every week. You know, we'll get at least one email a week where it's and it's it's kind of like you know two hours of free content, and you want to hone in on the one.
0: Well, God Fame. God forbid you as human beings ever misspeak or get a fact wrong or, you know.
1: And, you know, I've been on the other side of it, too. Like, my friends have a Pearl Jam podcast that I love. I'm a big Pearl Jam fan, and I even, I know them well. And sometimes, like, if they get a thing wrong, I'll be in my car, and I do I, that feeling happens where you're like, no, you're yeah. getting this wrong. But for me, luckily, it immediately, it subsides as soon as it arises. So yeah. the thought of, like, going and, writing an email to them is insane to me.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's funny, too, though, because, you know, doing an episode like this, for me, is obviously more conversational, and I'm basically, you know, whatever our conversation is, is going to be the episode, minus, you know, the tag intro that I'll put on and the tag outro or whatever. But, you know, when I record an episode by myself, I could take my time and edit it a bit more and put in clips and, do this and do that and kind of think out what i'm going to say a little bit more and then i then you are going to uh, when you're having a conversation with the person so when you and ethan are having a weekly conversation there's you're more likely to you know make a goof or to go on a rant or to completely change subjects (laughs)
1: Well, I think what's I think the best service that we can do and by we I mean you included and Tom and the Metallichat guys and uh, Ryan Speak and Destroy is the best service I think we can give to our listeners other than being idiots um, is actually having the same conversation we might have at a bar. That's right. really what the whole show is. It's not. Yep. It's not a. It's not a college course that you can, you know, you're being cr- accredited for. It's like this is just some dude talking about Metallica. So
0: that's why I'm always like at the end of each episode at, on social media, I'm always like begging people to like, give me their thoughts. Cause I want, you know, but I'm not the only voice out there. I don't want my voice to be the only one out there. And I want like one of the reasons why I started the show was to have conversations like this with people like you that I've met and, you know, share our love for the band we love. That's what it's all about.
1: Well, we're glad you're out there. And, and, uh, um, I'm really glad to have been on the show, dude. I really appreciate you letting me talk to you about Metallica because yeah, people haven't heard that enough.
0: <laughs> well, apparently some of you, some of them out there can't get enough of it. So God <laughs> bless you guys, you know, but, uh, you know, we can start wrapping up and it, I know you got a lot of things going on, Clint, and you're flying out this morning
1: yes uh we are flying so i play uh, on the weekends mostly i play for a country artist named rodney atkins and uh we it's a kind of a busy season for us we have a new single out that's doing pretty well so we're flying out to um we're flying to portland today where we're gonna and usually when we fly out to the west coast or the pacific northwest we stay out there for a while just because it makes more sense to keep us out there so yeah we're gonna be gone about six days out there playing shows so yeah it's busy man it's busy stuff
0: Well, have fun, man. Good luck to you. You have anything you want to, you have anything you would like to plug? Yeah. I mentioned your website before and obviously metal up your podcast, which if you're listening to this, I'm sure you already familiar with their show, but
1: yeah, well, yeah. For those of you who may not. So yeah. So I have a Metallica podcast, much like Brandon's called a metal podcast with my friend, Ethan, same format. We talk about records and band members. It's free, and you can find it wherever you find that stuff. If you're interested in my music, um, you can... Yeah, Brandon graciously mentioned my website, clintwellsmusic.com. There's all sorts of candy over there for you to check out. And uh, I guess that's about it in terms of plugging stuff. I'm on all the socials, all that, all that stuff. Except Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I guess I, I guess I can't say that anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I have uh, Metallic Ass on Facebook. I have a personal Facebook, too, but... I, I gotta say I prefer I prefer Twitter. It's a lot more immediate. It's a lot yeah. You get a lot less uh, bots out there, and I get some weird ass messages on Facebook, man, through the Metallicast thing. It's,
1: yeah, it's Ethan weird. does that for us. You gotta get on. Uh, you gotta get on Instagram, dude. I am on Instagram. Your Instagram. Oh, are
0: you okay? Yeah, at MetallicastPod. Pod. Um, it I don't spend as much time on it. I probably should spend more time on it. Um, but I am at Metalcast Pod on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook, and I'm happy to say, thanks to the support out there, Metalcast now has over 500 followers on the Twitter and over 700 likes on the Facebook. So thank you for that.
1: Nice. I just followed you on uh, on Instagram.
0: Perfect. Yeah, you got I... get on
1: there. You got to get on there and do some. Uh... Uh, and and Justice for Jason based stuff For the Justice stuff
0: <laughs> You're right I should I, I gotta take more advantage of Instagram I usually will go on there And I'll post a pic to promote like a, a new episode And that's about it But I should definitely utilize that too more Because a lot of I think people use Instagram more than anything
1: Yeah it can be kind of hard to keep up with all that But uh, I think it's worthwhile And you know you got a good show You got people out there who care about what you do I, the way I kind of look at it is like it's a for Ethan and I, it's about a three year project and we're, all, we're maybe even a little more than halfway done. So when we finally do the last episode, whenever that will be, I want to be able to look back on the body of work and be like, wow, we we really we really did it full on, you know, yeah. like. So part of that, I think, is like being engaged on the socials and, and, you know, like it's fun to meet. We've met a lot of people who are our friends now that, yeah. that I otherwise would never have met without the show, yourself included. So I think it's cool
0: yeah totally agree so i hope that we did this song justice i feel like no pun intended <laughs> i feel like uh we did brush over some stuff <laughs> like the the cliff bird and poem um the spoken word section and uh Do you want to
1: just you want to just say the facts of it real quick so that you can <laughs> check it off the list
0: sure Well, I mean, it it has the poem that is credited to Cliff Burton, but it's actually, he only really wrote the last couple lines of it. Uh, So, when a man lies, he murders a part of the world. These are the pale depths which men miscall their lives. All this I cannot bear to witness any longer. Cannot the kingdom of salvation take me home? But the first part of that, do you know who wrote the first part? I do. I'm just quizzing you on something that I didn't know previously.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was some German poet. uh, A German poet. Paul something?
0: Yeah, Paul Gerhardt, a German poet from the 1600s. And the first two lines there uh, became really famous in the 1981 movie Excalibur, which I'm not sure where Cliff picked it up from, but he definitely used it and borrowed it. Um, And part of that poem is also on his tombstone. Right. Wow. It's just a. And I know that there was a biography on him that came out within the last couple years, and they called to live is to die. So this, you know, it's funny because this song even though Cliff does not play on it, is really a Cliff song.
1: Yeah, totally. It's it's the one this and Orion are the two I think of the most when I think about Cliff's stamp on the band.
0: Yeah. And I, I found this quote actually is from Mojo magazine in December two thousand eight, where Hatfield calls it an homage to Cliff without going over the top. It's about realizing how grateful we were to have that time with him.
1: Oh man. That's great.
0: Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to mention that even though we were wrapping up just because, uh, close my all time fave and got to make sure that we make note of that.
1: Yeah. I, I sometimes forget that, uh, I sometimes assume that everyone I'm talking to out in podcast land are, have all of my same thoughts and experiences.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny because I, there's a lot of times where, you know, I'll edit together an episode and I'll go back and listen to it before, um, you know, I actually like send it and What I'll listen back to him like, I didn't mention this. I didn't mention that. Why did I do that? Why did I? Right. Well, that's it, how
1: you get better at it, yeah. I guess.
0: It's, I'm always learning. Pretty soon I will be learned and this podcast will be something. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Clint, for coming on. Um, ClintWellsMusic.com. Follow him on all social media except Facebook. There we go. Um, I am at Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I already mentioned that I want the show to be as interactive as possible. So hit me up on social media. If you'd rather hit, uh, send me an email, I am Metallicast at fans.experts.com. Or Clint, I don't know if you know this, but we have a uh, Metallicast hotline now. And I've received... Two messages from a, a, a Jimmy. Um, he sounds familiar. I'm not sure where he is. He has a lot of... Yeah, yes though. Um, <laughs> and uh, a little birdie told me that I might have a message from Dave. Uh, oh, boy. Or a Lars or somebody coming up soon, too. But if you want to join the likes of Jimmy and leave a message, you can just call 203-548-0609. It's a Google number. You can leave a message from... Any place you have Wi-Fi, whether it's your phone or your laptop. So leave a message, ask a question, give a shout-out, do your best Lars impression, plug your own podcast, YouTube channel, whatever. I just want to hear from you guys. Clint, any uh, final words, sir? Uh, I don't think I have any final words. That, then that could Is be that your okay? final. Is that okay? Saying you don't have any final words can be your final words. How about
1: that? Right. The snake eats its tail, yes.
0: <laughs> Clint, thank you so much for coming on. Best of luck on your current tour. Um, it was, I had a blast having you on and I've been, it's funny because when I had Nick on for the Harvester of Star episode, um, I know, you know, you got, he has that connection with you guys and he's been on Tom's show. So I was like, tell them to come on the damn show.
1: <laughs> What's funny is I reached out to you before I even heard that. I didn't even know that you had said that. It was like weird whining of the stars. Yeah. yeah.
0: It, it, yeah you, cause you reached out to me, I think like the day that episode came out or like the day after. So, right. But thanks for reaching out and a uh, pleasure to have you on. I hope you can come back on again some point and hope you can get Ethan on sometime as well.
1: Yeah, man. Love to.
0: All right. Well, I will end every episode with a Metallica cover. So I found this, uh, cover of to live is to die. It's by a band called Clarion Concepts, Clarion, C-L-A-R-I-O-N. Uh, I, not too much information for me about them, but you can definitely find them on YouTube. They have a whole YouTube channel set up and the, Looks like they have a couple covers out there, including this one. So until next time, ladies and gentlemen, metal up your ass. Yeah! expert